Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. My name is Dr. Dennis Moles, and I'm a pastor and professor from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Chris's older brother. Chris is still fighting some vocal issues this week, but's on the mend and should be back very soon. Today, we're going to be hearing part two of the masterclass, A Theology of Abuse, from PeaceWorks University. If you find this episode helpful, you can find more content or sign up for additional masterclasses at chrismoles.org. Today's conversation features our friend, Dr. Jeremy Pierre, professor of biblical counseling at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoy part two of Chris and Dr. Pierre's conversation focusing on a theology of abuse. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm being a bit overly simplistic just because I'm giving a principle. I'm not acting like this is, this is like the be all, be all and end all. But if a, guy, if a guy swears at his wife, that's sinful. And, and all sin, in one sense, is relationally harmful. He hurts her feelings. He, he undermines intimacy with her. He makes her feel sort of maybe shamed or rejected, depending on what he says. That, that is sin. It may not necessarily be abuse, okay? What, abu- what, what separates that from abuse is, is he in some way trying to diminish and constrain and force his will on her? So you could use those exact same words spread out over time as a pattern of interaction towards that, towards your wife who's, you know, sort of under, under your influence in that sense. And that then can become abusive. But, but I'm trying to be clear on the dividing line. It's, it's particularly the constraint. Does that make sense, Chris? Absolutely. We would use very similar language. Uh, force or the threat of force is a big motivator. So when you, when you talk about influence and power, and usually men have more power societally, uh, creative order, you know, physically, that sort of thing, there's aspects in which when you use that power irresponsibly or abusively, that force, right, is going to be a very um, effective means yeah. And getting what you want, yeah. right? Because it works. It works in every kind of relationship. I often help my guys understand it by asking them why they pay their taxes. You know, and we walk through. Eventually, it always comes down to why well, I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's a there's a threat of force, right, used to compel you. Um, I mean, it's not a one for one analogy, but it's something that the guys can comprehend. Because without that threat of force. And that's where a lot of our pastors struggle because they'll be like, well, he hasn't hit her. Well, he doesn't have to if that threat is present because force is compelling. That's right. That's exactly right. And force comes, manipulation and force come in a lot of different ways. Okay. But what, it, what, what I want to point out in regards to what you just said too, is that, I mean, if, if your average pastor or church leader who's thinking about this stuff, just think about God for a second, how he gets obedience from us. He does not force us in the sense that he overrides our will. Okay. He, he wins us by his grace. He transforms us by 
Christ being given to us. We are, we are declared righteous in Christ through faith. Righteousness is supplied to us. And now we want to, out of a changed nature and changed will, we want to obey him. That's, that's, that's very different than him using manipulation or self-interest, right? To kind of override your consciousness at any given point and make you do something. So it's interesting that there's even grace, even people who end up not following God and not obeying God and going their own way, they have the freedom to go their own way. They're going to pay the consequences for it. And God makes those consequences very clear in terms of his almighty judgment, um, who God alone, by the way, can do. No human being can, can, has the right to do that. But my point to you is even the God who rightly demands our obedience does not exert himself in these forceful ways to gain our obedience. Yeah, so the old analogy, it's somewhat pithy, but I think helpful to unpack that I've heard is that the kingdom of the world strategy for leadership is the stick or the carrot. You either beat the beast with the stick or you manipulate them with the carrot. Uh, God's leadership strategy is to break the stick over his son's back and then feed us the carrot. Right. Yeah. It's through his love and grace that we're like, I really want to follow this guy as opposed to his force. Yeah, that's right. That's good. So then the, just further unpacking it, another point we could make is abuse is the dangerous reversal of love. Okay. So again, this is both with the love doctrine, but also the doctrine of the image of God. You think about the link between those two. God gave you personhood to build up the personhood of other people. That's the purpose for which he gave it. And insofar as we use it for the reverse, I think, I think that's where, where it's most clearly abuse, right? Where we're using personal capacity, not, not to arrange the world to the benefit of others, but we're using personal capacity to diminish the capacities of others so that they're forced into building a world that's beneficial to us. We become, we become little gods in ourselves because we're using God-like capacities, God-like personhood to force and compel others to give the glory to us, okay? Love is the opposite of that, okay? Love expands others at, at cost of self. And so that's, that's one of the, the, the easiest measures uh, to apply in a live situation where you have a guy who, because of his work perception, he doesn't see himself as an abuser, okay? And if you try to just define abuse for him and like sort of lay out, here's the criteria of it, you're, you're going to get a lot of resistance as Chris knows better than anybody else, okay? And that's a good thing to do. I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm also saying, but putting together, putting forward the positive model of what he fails to be puts that contrast all the more clearly in front of them. Like you are not loving. Okay. And one of the things that we do and gang, you guys are familiar with this as we build out the tree model, as we're working with guys, we do gather as much data as we can. And one of the misconceptions I think within biblical counseling sometimes is that we're gathering this data so that they can confess each individual incident of abuse. But the data gathering is about building out the, the construct so that we can do what Jeremy's talking about, which is identify and label the misperception or faulty worldview. And so by the time we get to the heart level discussion, 
and we've got all this behavior and all these motives and the guys are wrestling with that, part of our purpose then is to contrast that with that gospel of peace and who Jesus is and then develop that understanding of the worldview that says this is where the shift has to happen. This is where repentance starts so that you can properly handle all of this. Because Jeremy's absolutely right. If you're working with abusers, I know some of you are stepping into this work. Uh, it is not one of those introducing the topic and there's a great revelation right. because there's such a warped perception and such a little God syndrome that Jeremy's talking about. It's a lot of pulling the rope, working, 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 patiently, winsomely developing a new worldview. Uh, so it, it's not an overnight process. And that's why we gather data to expose, not necessarily to build some kind of pragmatic list of repentance, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, very good. So then continuing to, to explain that, that, that one central description, we could also say another point would be abuse warps the purpose of marriage, okay? So uh, marriage, I, I believe scripture is clear that it is a unique relationship between two beings that are in one way dissimilar and in one way similar. In one way they're like each other and in another way they're not. They're like each other in that they're both persons. They're both created in the image of God. Unlike each other, in that they are one is male and one is female. This is a beautiful thing that God designed. It's a complementary design, a complementary design. Um, meaning that the limitations of one are filled in by the strengths and, and abilities of the other, and vice versa. That's what it means to complement uh, one another. And so when you look, at marriage as this exclusive relationship where love has a unique and uniquely potent expression, right? Powerful expression. Um, like I said earlier, the, the positive effects are really high, but the negative effects are really, really low. And so it's a warping of a complementary design. Now, I know that abuse can happen from females to males and, and, I think I do think at large we want to do a better job recognizing that and coming up with resources for that. Okay, but I think it's also true, and Chris Chris has helped me understand this. Um, it's predominantly male to female abuse, and I think there's actually the biblical description of that is is simply that that God designed men to be leaders, and He designed women to support, uh, I want to be careful, men to be leaders in the home, okay, and, and women to follow them, wives to follow their husbands in this complementary design. Now, that, that might sound super chauvinistic, but it really isn't, because when, when we say lead, if you actually read the Bible's description of leadership and even the word authority, okay, it is, it is never seen in a pagan sense. Jesus says it's a pagan understanding of authority that it is exerted in such a way that at cost to those under the authority, the person in authority is built up and is glorified and is served, okay? Because he said, I came, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's in the context of talking about authority. And then if you read in Ephesians 5 about what a headship actually looks like in 
a marriage, the husband actually is uniquely accountable in a way that the wife is not accountable. He's uniquely accountable to lead in laying down his life, putting his interests under the interests of his wife so that she is built up. So now you maybe see the connection to what we were saying about the Imago Dei, right? The image of God. What that means is the husband's job is to use his personhood and his efforts in such a way that builds up and expands her personhood into the fullness of what God made her to be. And that is the image of Jesus Christ operating out of freedom of, his, of her gifting and, and, and of, of the full joy of who she was made to be. So, so I, want, I want to be really clear here. The husband is uniquely responsible for, for leading in the laying down of his, of his life. So that's why, you know, when, when you get into these talks with some of these guys about what submission is, a lot of these guys have no right to be talking about submission because they have no idea about the entire framework, the complementary framework, as I just described it. Right. They're seeing a pagan version of it, and they're talking about submission in a pagan way. Right, which is, goes back to that warped perception. Right. As each of these theological keys are being warped to the point, they're being bent to the point that it doesn't turn the lock. It, it's, a, it's a faux sense of theological certainty. And I think within complementarity, one of the things that is difficult is in the church, and we don't have time for all of this, I think we've softened ourselves because we like the pagan version of leadership. It's easy. It's effective. It certainly benefits those at the top. And so we've, we've embraced that to the point that much of these discussions are clouded and here's the truth, the theological truth, but practically we've been living pastorally and uh, relationally like this, like the pagans. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, we don't have probably have time to get into the specifics of like, what do you tell a wife who has an abusive husband about submission? Um, the bottom line is, is that all authority is derived authority. God is the ultimate authority that man is not the ultimate authority. And so there comes a time where that, that principle of submission is not applied in the same way in that situation at all. And so, again, we can't unpack that. I just wanted to make sure that we noted that as we're on this topic. So then the last thing I would say, just in, in this, this sort of five doctrine perspective of, of domestic abuse, is about the church, actually. So the last point I'd say is just abuse should be outrageous to the church. And that, that squares with what you just said, Chris. Um, you know, here's, here's one of the most pernicious things about, about abuse is that the people who are most dependent on an abusive person suffer the worst consequences uh, from, from their diminished humanity. And that's why, for the sake of those kid, the, those wife and kids, to be in a greater community context that can that that can reinforce an atmosphere of what's true and right and good and humble and wise and caring, to then hold that man accountable so that he can't create his own little atmosphere that 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 chokes uh, that chokes his wife. Uh, and his children. That's the importance of the church. And, and Chris, to go back to what you were saying, 
this is why we have to be super self-reflective as church leaders about how we lead because 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 a pagan understanding of authority and submission makes more sense to guys in a church where there's power plays going on and and pastors are easily offended when their when their authority is challenged and they're manipulative in the way they speak about people about from the pulpit or where they speak about people they plant different seeds in people's minds and they're just sort of orchestrating all these things well guess what a guy doing that in his home makes total sense to him he thinks he's, he's acting in line with the pastor but on the other hand if you have a humble leadership that takes congregationalism seriously and that takes sorry i just had to throw in congregationalism there but takes the needs of their people seriously is humble when they're critiqued doesn't have to win every argument, is in it for the long haul, is more concerned with the needs and the cares of the people than accomplishing strategy X, Y, and Z for the year 2020, a 2020 vision. Everybody's probably preaching that sermon, right? Um, then, then if you have that kind of leadership, not only are the wives who are potentially being victimized, not only do they feel more comfortable approaching leaders like that it those husbands also get the real keen sense wait a second I, this this is i think these guys are wimps i i don't i don't like this type of leadership and that's going to actually come out which is a helpful indicator to sort of dig into things in the home yeah that's excellent i think the church is going to mirror or i should say the home is going to mirror in many ways the church's structure and so, you know, I said recently at a, at a conference that the bully pastor, you know, has got to end. We have been in a season where pastors have functioned as bullies in a lot of ways. And uh, is there any doubt then that that leadership model is going to trickle down as the assumed model, right? right. If we haven't been unpacking Matthew 20 or Mark 10 uh, and uh, John uh, 13 and Philippians 2, and we're really seeing the, the structure of leadership from a Jesus hermeneutic, uh, yep. then yeah, we should expect people to have a warped yeah. view of yeah. all of these doctrinal, doctrinal positions that you're talking about. Yeah, that's good. And, and, and here's where that circles back to where we began. A, a, a pastor should know that he's not entitled to get his way, and he should be happy with that fact. Right, right. That's really, that's really rare, because we kind of baptize our our own perspective of what we want to accomplish. And, and sometimes in, in the name of God, we can be more bullying than we realize. Now, right. I'm all for strong leadership in the Jesus strong sense. Okay. Yeah. You, you can't be manipulated by people's, by people's opinions that are not based on the word of God. You have to challenge the people of God to, to increasingly grow in their ability to see things biblically, right? They're not going to naturally do that. That's why we're pastors. That's why we're church leaders and things. So I'm not saying a lay down and let the people lead type of leadership. But what I am saying is a leadership that's marked by the humility to know the difference between my personal ambitions and preferences and the work of the kingdom of God of forming Christ in these people and in anyone else that he would bring to hear the gospel and be saved. Excellent. So, you know, as we're thinking about this stuff, guys, uh, we're going to 
Chelsea's going to be working on something. She will have a toolbox item for you based on this conversation with Jeremy. Uh, and I'm sure it will include those five uh, points on the spectrum, uh, theological positions. Uh, maybe during our next Q&A, uh, if you could come up, what are some other theological constructs that you see that could fit into this framework that clearly through reflection would oppose an understanding of abuse? The more, the better. And I know some, some folks have been having this question about uh, theological positions, like does complementarity really lead to abuse? Uh, does Calvinism uh, foster abuse more than say a Wesleyan point of view? I know some of you have been having that discussion because of the circles that we run in. And I think if we understand theological positions well, and I'll use, let's go to the Calvinism argument just real quick. I know many of the men I work with come from a more reformed, pseudo-reformed background, and they'll speak highly of the doctrines of grace, for instance, but yet have no practical application of the sovereignty of God would be the big one because of what Jeremy just talked about. So how does our theological understanding contrast abuse? I think that's a great practical exercise for us. Anything else, Jeremy, you'd like to, to share with uh, the folks? Any words of hope or any other final thoughts? Yeah, yeah. So, so laying all of this out, guys, it's, I mean, it's, we want to think really biblically and carefully, but I think the burden I continue to feel is getting better and better and better at the actual practice of these things and how you approach a, a wife who's been abused when and how and how to arrange things in such a way where now you can approach the guy who's actually doing the abusing. I mean, what, what, Chris, I, I, if I'm wrong, I think when you see the majority of the folks that you're working with, it's after everything's been revealed and they're being sort of, a, they're being siphoned to you. Yeah, it's but, at this point now, things have gone nuclear. I mean, it's, yeah. and that's why, you know, you have a lot of people ask about batting average. And I'm like, look, by the time it has got to me, right. there's not even a bat or a ball. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. <laughs> we're not even on the field. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, most of the time now, I'm dealing with pretty high-level conflict situations. Yeah. So the reason I ask that is just because one of the burdens Greg and I are trying to sort through is in a church context, when it's in the process of disclosure, and you don't know if it's a disclosure of what yet. How do you deal wisely with that? I just feel the weight of that burden. We're at least trying to produce a good resource yeah. uh, on that. But I just, I just want to mention that to everybody here because the fact that you don't have clarity or you might feel like that's a, like you, you don't exactly know what's right to do. And I was just, yeah. that's normal. That's, that's okay. It. it doesn't mean you shouldn't act, but it does mean that as you step forward with humility and carefulness, prizing the safety of, whoever could even potentially be a victim as your primary concern initially, yeah. you're, you're, that's really going to help you not make significant mistakes. Yeah, yeah agreed. I think uh, that's one of the things I really appreciated about the IBCD project that uh, Jeremy and I were both on is their deliberate, you know, their intentionality to show um, that disclosure at a low level as opposed to just going right for the supervillain um, you know, yeah. TV show type person. So, right, um, exactly. yeah. So we all got, all got to get better. I think too, prevention is going to be a big thing for the church. So yeah. excellent gang. I uh, hope yeah. you've enjoyed this. I have 
And I think this is gonna be a handy resource. Be looking for the accompanying toolbox item and the uh, upcoming Q&A. So thank you guys for joining the masterclass. Jeremy, thank you so much uh, for sharing your insight with us. Thanks for having me, Chris.